Darwin uh, was the, you know, he, I know, I don't think he was the first to propose this, but he um, put forward that uh, collaboration outperforms competition uh, at the group level. Sometimes, you know, at the individual level, level, individuals can be more competitive and they may outperform the other individual. And so it may give them some short-term gain. It may give them uh, some benefit. Um, but if that is brought up to the group level, the, the collaborative groups are always going to win. And, uh, and you know, look at the, look at the data um, in uh, the Wall Street data, uh, the analysis of uh, companies with women, leaders, women in leadership uh, outperform the all others um, with, uh, hands down uh, in, in every area. Spiritual director Daniel Hope joins the Plutopia podcast this time. Daniel and John discuss spirituality, meditation, spiritual direction, artificial intelligence versus humanity, finding common ground, and much more. Hey everybody, welcome to the latest episode of the Plutopia podcast. Uh, we're podcasting to you from high in uh, Plutopia Towers, located in cyberspace. And our guest today is Daniel Hope. Daniel is a spiritual director and Enneagram coach who runs spirituality programming in the healthcare industry. Daniel and his wife Leslie just celebrated their 23rd anniversary, yay! And they have a couple of daughters, Camilla, 18, Violet, 15, and a four-year-old son, George. And Daniel has joined us today to talk about who knows what. Who knows what we're going to talk about? Who knows, who knows John, where this will lead? Yes, absolutely. The journey. So what's your definition of spirituality? Spirituality, I would say at its most fundamental level, is a connection to something greater than me and my understanding of the world, of myself, um, even of God, I would say. It's something, something beyond what I can personally wrap my head around. Is that like when they talk about your higher power or whatever? Yeah. I mean, just the idea that it's not all in your head and you're not the only thing in the universe. Yeah. Well, oddly enough in Buddhism there, there is a thing about how you are the universe and the universe is you, but of course it's beyond you too. And uh, there's paradox in all of that. Um, is your background mostly Christian? Uh, mostly, I would say mostly Christian. I, uh, I read a, uh, I think it was a book on Reiki one time where there was someone who, uh, was sitting in a vegan, uh, restaurant and they looked over on the wall and it said, uh, it was framed on the wall. It said, what a blessing to be born in one of the world's great religions and what a, a shame to die in it. And, and not, not necessarily meaning that you need to leave the religion you were born into. Um, but to die in it is something that I've always been mindful of from, from a pretty young age. I, I um, grew up in a, in um, evangelical tradition. I'm, I'm from up in the Texas panhandle and um, grew up in a Southern Baptist church there. And, uh, and I knew just from a pretty young age that there were a lot of questions that I had that were not going to be answered in within that community and and i also know there are a lot of questions i still have that are not going to be answered in any community but um what was searching and so um that was my formation uh spiritual formation i also discovered meditation at a really young age just just doing it not really knowing anything about it and and so that's been a through line from my early adolescence until, um, this very day, right, right before this interview, even so, uh, a few minutes before we got on. And so, um, I did, uh, spent some time. We, my wife and I moved around, um, after we were married, we lived in New York and North Carolina, uh, in our twenties. 
and I looked at Buddhism and, and that actually gave me a, um, Buddhist meditation actually gave me a, uh, a, a process for, for meditation and which I didn't have before. And, and I've since discovered, uh, centering prayer, which is a, a Christian, um, uh, you know, meditation tradition that I, um, I lead a group every Thursday and, uh, centering prayer that, um, we've, we've talked about John, but that, um, so that that's a part of it. I did go to the Episcopal seminary and that's where I got my, um, got my master's and, and where I studied clinical psychology and, and where I got my counseling training and where you met me. I, it, that is where we met. Are, yeah. You know, John, I think it might, we might have met at South by Southwest interactive. Oh, really? Before, before the, uh, meeting at the seminary. I think that's right. I think you came to my panel. Um, oh yeah. And, okay. Uh, why everything is amazing, but nobody's happy. So that's, that's a good question right there. Why is everything amazing <laughs> and nobody is happy? Yeah, well, we should we should get to that in a minute. I guess I did. The, the question I was about to ask is: I mean, you talked about how you very early found your way to meditation, and I was wondering, what, like, what form of meditation initially did you find? You know, I uh, it's it's funny. I have a, a cousin who lived in the Chicago area, and he would introduce. We he would come over the summers and basically spend the whole summer in in Lubbock with my my grandmother and, and I'd spend a good part of the summer there as well. And he would introduce me to all of these big city Chicago things. Um, one of which was, uh, uh, Ray Lynch, the, um, you know, the, the new age musician. And, and so he would play, you know, I would listen to these, um, to these songs and we were, we would go to family's family reunions out, uh, at a place called Buffalo Springs Lake outside of Lubbock, Texas. And, um, I just watched the, we, we had a good view right down on the water. And, uh, and I would, I would remember just watching the, you know, the boats or the sail sailboats or whatever was down there. Um, jet skis probably is more like it. And, um, and listening to that music and, and realizing that there was something about that um, kind of the intentionality of the music and, and just, you know, just kind of gazing without trying to do anything. And that, that gave me um, a, a peace and a kind of a solitude, um, a centeredness um, that I didn't, I wasn't used to experiencing. And so I started incorporating that into, into my daily life. And I would do the kind of the evangelical tradition of the quiet time. I don't know if you've heard of that where it's, you know, every day you, you find some time, you read your Bible, you do a reflection. And I would do that. And I would incorporate this kind of, uh, intentional silence. Um, but not necessarily like a, a, prayer, a prayer, like I had been taught to pray, um, which is, which was more speaking more of a dialogue or, or a request or, a, um, you know, a gratitude or something. It was, it was more of a, a receptiveness than it was, a, a communication. Yeah. Interesting thing about meditation is that it's, um, it can mean so many things and there can be so many ways to do it. And sometimes people think that they're meditating to relax or to sort of just kind of let go of their day or whatever, or just to kind of settle down a bit. But really meditation is, is a very powerful spiritual tool uh, or spiritual practice really. And uh, as a Buddhist, you know, I meditate regularly and, um, I was just discussing earlier today with somebody about how there can be these very different forms where sometimes there are guided meditations where someone is talking you through it and they talk and they talk and they talk. And to me that that's not the kind of meditation I would do. I would do a meditation where I'm completely, you know, silent hmm. Hmm. and, 
and uh, sort of allowing myself to be present just where I am. Um, and I don't know, I was just kind of wondering, have you gone through variations of meditation over time? Yeah, absolutely, John. And, you know, you're, we, we, I know that you and I've talked about this experience and just our different, um, experiences with meditation. Uh, when I was, you know, young, uh, college age and, and particularly in my early twenties, when my wife and I moved to New York, right after I graduated, um, I would start my day with, you know, have the yoga mat out, had, um, face toward the sun. And I would do a, as I think a Zen meditation, the, as, as I learned it, um, where I would cross my legs and I'm, um, eyes open, soft gaze, looking f into the middle distance, but you know, lower middle distance, but not focusing on any one thing specifically. And that was, that was my form of meditation for many years, you know, maybe the next 10, uh, 15 years. And, uh, it's only in the last seven or eight years that I've discovered, uh, centering prayer, uh, or some, we sometimes call it centering method, just in case people get hung up on the prayer part and don't, um, don't see beyond that. Uh, but that is in the tradition of Thomas Keating. And it really is in a, a more ancient tradition than, you know, any of the modern religions, but it is, um, it is sitting, um, doesn't matter what, where you sit typically in a chair, um, you're silent. And as you, engage in stimulus, um, you know, an outside stimuli, um, you return ever so gently to your sacred word and whatever your word is, it doesn't matter. Um, nothing too loaded, um, preferably because if it's really loaded, then you get focused on the word, something, something simple, one or two syllables. And in, uh, father Keating's words, you return ever so gently to the sacred word. And uh, the idea is that if you have to return a thousand times to your sacred word, that is a thousand opportunities to return to the divine. And, uh, and the thing that I love so much about this process is the, the idea that the distraction or the engagement in the sound or in the physical sensation or in the shopping list or whatever it is that your mind goes to is, um, in the words of Keating, uh, inevitable and integral. So it's, it's not only, is it something that's, that is going to happen just because of the human condition, which is, is, um, a common, uh, discussion, uh, point with us, John, but also because of, um, but it's also integral. It's, it's vital to the process that you are distracted and you return ever so gently to that sacred word and, and really the benefit. And I've found great benefit in the moment of, of that, of that, uh, process, uh, of that method. Uh, but the benefit is often off of the cushion off of the meditation chair. It's, it's when I will get fixated on, um, you know, something I read, read on Twitter and I start going down this rabbit hole and I, I shut the app down and my mind's still going and it's following it. Um, I have the opportunity to return ever so gently to my sacred word. And so that's something that can guide me, um, throughout my day. So couple of, um, and there, there are other, um, specific, very specific meditations, uh, that I do, uh, in, in spiritual direction as well. Um, when I'm working with a directee or a, or a spiritual companion where I will, will, I will very, uh, intentionally lead through a, a guided meditation. And I agree with what you're saying that sometimes you know, if that was the only meditation that I had is something where somebody's talking me through it. Um, I don't, I don't think I would get the full richness of that experience that, that I do when I have the silence and when I have, <clears throat> have that solitude or even a shared silence with others. So, 
So those are a couple of uh, experiences with with meditation. John. You can't you can't really show somebody what meditation is, and words really are inadequate, in my opinion, yeah. to explain it. But with a guided meditation, you can point people in a direction. And of course, in, in Buddhist training, there's, uh, of course it varies in various traditions of Buddhism, but there's a lot of, uh, um, there's a lot of experiential stuff going on. That's kind of beyond words or doesn't depend on words. And then the words themselves can be used in ways that are sort of paradoxical and that sort of shift you into a different gear, so to speak. Um, so uh, you mentioned a uh, spiritual direction, and this is related to the work that you're doing now. Can you say a little bit more about that, about kind of what your work is today? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is, you know, this is incredible work that I get to do. Um, it, it feels like uh, in line with a lot of the work that I've done my whole life or, or tried to do, uh, but it wasn't until, you know, maybe seven or eight years ago that I discovered spiritual direction. Uh, and before that I had, you know, I had gone, um, then I'd done different types of work, but I had a, a therapy practice when I, when I had an opportunity to, um, to work in a spirituality center. And that's where I discovered, uh, that's where I discovered spiritual direction or spiritual companionship. Sometimes we joke that spiritual direction is, is not really a great, uh, title because we're not directing anyone. If you're directing someone in, in spiritual direction, you're, um, you're likely not benefiting the person. It's more of an accompaniment, uh, along a spiritual journey. So, um, and what I, what I realized is I, I had was working at the spirituality center and I was maintaining my private practice as a therapist. And the more spiritual direction that I did, the more I realized that it had all of the things that I liked about therapy and, and none of the stuff that I didn't like. <laughs> and, uh, so there was no diagnosis. I didn't, I didn't do diagnosis. Um, I worked in a narrative, um, form of therapy. Um, and, uh, the one thing that I missed was working with couples, um, because that was the focus of my practice was, uh, marriage and, and relationship, uh, families, um, but what I started doing is I started doing spiritual direction also with couples as well. And so, um, it's, you know, it's got some similarity to therapy, you know, you meet, but the, the cadence of it is about once a month, uh, one will meet with the spiritual director and, and there is, there's, it's more of an ongoing relationship. Um, it's, you know, less, there, there aren't goals, uh, in the way that you would have with, with coaching or, or, uh, often with therapy. Um, but there, there is a, um, there is a calling on the part of the spiritual director to really look at what is in between what is being said, what, what is trying to emerge, maybe what, what is even in the blind spot of the directee that is, uh, the person in spiritual direction, what is, what is in, uh, their blind spot, what's wanting to be born or what is already being born. And so really looking for, looking for that in, uh, in those, the, those sessions spent together and, and it is meant to be an ongoing process. So it'll, it'll go on, you know, you can meet with the spiritual director for years. Um, but it is a little less frequent than you may do uh, therapy, which is typically, weekly or bi-weekly, um, typically meet with a directee once a month, it, which gives a little more space because there's a lot that can happen between those sessions. And you don't, the, the, um, you know, the thing about the, one of the things that I find most beneficial about meditation is the process of subtraction that happens. It's the releasing and letting things go because I have so many, things that I want to add and so many things I want to take in. And, um, if we keep going back to, you know, spiritual direction, for example, weekly, there's a little less time for that releasing of those things or, or, um, kind of 
being able to step back and see what's uh, what's happening, what is uh, being born, so to speak. Oh, that's that's interesting. Uh, how, how does this uh, how does this connect in a work situation or to a work situation? I mean, I know that you you do some work that is or, or some of the work that you're doing is integrated with the workplace experience. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So I get to facilitate a lot of a lot of um, work. Uh, work-related, uh, leadership-related, um, spiritual formation. So that is that is um, looking at what are the spiritual opportunities that our associates, our employees uh, deserve. Um, what are they entitled to, uh, and how can we deliver those? And so we do that. We try to do that from the very utmost level, the highest level of leadership. <clears throat> all the way down to people who have just started um, in every type of position. And so really looking at how to uh, expand access of spiritual formation or, you know, spiritual encounters like spiritual direction, uh, like um, retreats, like Enneagram work that I do a lot of that sort of um that sort of work. Yeah. I definitely want to talk about Enneagram in a minute, uh, but this, this work that you're doing now is mostly in a health, in the context of healthcare, correct? It is, it is in the healthcare system. And, um, that's, so that's specifically, um, that's specifically what I'm doing right now. And it has implications for every industry. Um, healthcare is, it, you know, it's very near and dear to me. Um, supporting healthcare providers is very, you know, um, in, you know, I have a heart for healthcare providers. Uh, my, my wife, um, have, was born with a congen congenital heart defect and <clears throat> just seeing the way that she's been, um, you know, served by healthcare providers is, is very important to me, um, as, you know, as well as other members of my family. So, it, it's a it's a great honor to serve healthcare. Um, there's also important implications for this work in every industry. And uh, big picture, one of the things that I like to look at is where um, you know as we're looking at technology and um, uh, evolving technology, looking at the ways that that the spiritual can offer us answers that the scientific or the um, logical can, cannot. And, um, and I think that this spiritual aspect of who we are is one of the most important things that sets us apart from, that sets humans apart from, from other, other people, other, not other people. I, I would say animals. I think that there's a spiritual component to a lot of, what what animals do, uh, but also looking at, at technology and, and what's emerging um, specifically in the form of AI. Well, that's interesting. What? How does AI play into this? So, um, you know, from from a big picture view, you know, I look at at artificial intelligence, and I look at the the type of intelligence that we've developed over, you know, thousands, millions of years and into our current human intelligence. And, uh, and I see, uh, similarities to that in, in technology and in, in, uh, artificial intelligence. And I see a great, uh, I feel a great responsibility to that emerging. What I see is an emerging consciousness and, um, whereas many technologists will, will, you know, kind of have this dystopian view of that emerging technology or emerging consciousness. Um, the assumption that it will wipe us out. It's a zero sum game. Um, why would any, you know, any other consciousness alien or technological, um, look at humans and do anything other than, you know, turn us into, uh, slaves or, or, you know, wipe us out as a, see us as a threat. Um, 
I think that that is, um, I think that that's so short-sighted and really, you know, you, John, you and I have talked about the axial age, uh, you know, religion looking at uh, pre-axial age and looking at the axial age and the second axial age, which I, I believe we're, we're in right now. It's, bef it's pre all of that. I mean, if we're looking, I mean, and, and um, I'll, I'll actually make it even a little more concrete. Um, what if we looked at our children in the same way? You know, we, we have a baby and all we can think about, you know, oh, this is amazing. We have this baby, but what if it grows up and it sees all the mistakes and it sees how, you know, all the ecological, um, you know, bad decisions that I've made and decides to wipe me out. That that's, that's kind of how I see, um, see the, this kind of dystopian view of this emerging consciousness. Well, I, my thought about that is that that dystopian view assumes a separation of artificial from human intelligence. And I don't think that there's ever really a separation. I think that artificial intelligence is driven by and integrated with human intelligence and, and you can't really kind of take them apart. You know, uh, right. AI is developed by humans, uh, humans sort of set the programming, um, to the extent that an AI was to have any kind of ethic, it would be a programmed ethic that we've programmed into it. Uh, and I suppose you could have sociopaths programming sociopathic AI, uh, but I kind of don't think that's going to happen. So I, but then again, yeah. I also don't think artificial intelligence is, is intelligent in the same way that human intelligence, you know, uh, is intelligent. And I think that we know so little about what consciousness is or what intelligence is yeah. really, you know, that it's really even hard to, it's hard to determine how well they compare because we don't even understand our own side of it. Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more, John. And the, the idea that, um, the only model for, and the only, um, purveyor of intelligence is the brain is, is, uh, is very problematic. And I think that that's where a lot of the technologists will, will start with that assumption that the brain, um, is this many, you know, neurons in a, in a network. And, and if we can increase the number of, uh, connections and increase, just increase the complexity of our networks, um, then we'll replicate what human intelligence will, will, will do that. And there, I, I think that there's something about complexity that, that does, um, lead to consciousness. I mean, it, Teilhard de, de Chardin um, said pretty much just that there's, there's attraction and then the attraction leads to connection and the connection leads to complexity and the complexity leads to consciousness. It's, it's kind of that, those steps. Um, and consciousness leads to bad television. Right. right. Apparently, <laughs> apparently so by, by all, um, Visible evidence, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, yes, and it also entertaining, um, so often entertaining television. But um, yeah, I, I think that that the relational, and I, and I think that you know that was a big piece of the, you know, my thesis with the uh, South by Southwest um, panel that you came to, looking at that intersection of technology and work and relationships and spirituality, you know, those four things, how do, how do those, how do those, uh, interact? And if we look at, I, and back to your point about, um, the, um, the assumption about artificial intelligence being like human intelligence or being sep separate from human intelligence. Uh, you know, if we look at, uh, you know, sociologists and, um, and, uh, bio, you know, biological research and evolutionary biologists, um, 
uh, collaborative uh, groups outperform competitive groups every time. That's that's always how it's happened. And so to assume that this this intelligence emerges and it uh, it's only competitive and then it then it outperforms humans is is missing these these big important uh, uh, tomes of research that we have. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good. I often wonder why it is that competition became kind of the rule because um, competition is is such a source of what ails us that um, well. Uh, and you know, when I had a, a company, I turned it into a, a cooperative uh, because I felt that a cooperative business was made a lot more sense than competition. Um, and we also cooperated with other cooperatives, you know, um, the competitive thing is, I mean, it's kind of inherent and I know that people do sort of tend to compete, but it's sort of like, um, the difference in, in sort of like capitalism and outright greed capitalism works well until people start getting really greedy and start trying to take what's not theirs and that sort of thing. And, um, um, of course in spirituality, one of the things that we think about is an ethics and and the ethical dimension i think the ethical dimension is kind of missing now because i don't think people are teaching it very much oh absolutely and and one one of my um kind of fundamental thesis thesis, thesis is that um business has become the de facto of source of ethics of ethical leadership uh and is not willing to take up that mantle of ethical leadership uh, or, or acknowledge the responsibility that they have. And, and you see it with the big tech companies. You see it with irresponsible uh, communication from a lot of the tech billionaires that you, that, that you see just turn on, you know, uh, open Twitter uh, even, even this very day. And, and, you'll, and you'll see that um, you'll see that, that kind of, selfish, irresponsible, um, refusal to acknowledge the, the ethical responsibility. And, and that's, that's where, that's where the spiritual can come in. That's where the relational, uh, will come in. And I, I mean, look at also look at the science. I mean, the, the, um, Darwin, uh, was the, you know, he, I know, I don't think he was the first to propose this, but he, um, put forward that, uh, collaboration outperforms competition, uh, at the group level. Sometimes, you know, at the individual level level, individuals can be more competitive and they may outperform the other individual. And so it may give them some short-term gain. It may give them, uh, some benefit. Um, but if that is brought up to the group level, the, the collaborative groups are always going to win. And, uh, and, you know, look at the, look at the data, um, in, uh, the wall street data, uh, the analysis of, uh, companies with women leaders, women in leadership, uh, outperform the all others, um, uh, hands down uh, in, in every area. And, and that's because, I, you know, I believe that that women just are better collaborators um, overall and don't have that same baggage of, um, you know, whatever whatever the the mythology is that that the the individual entrepreneur is carrying or the individual uh, you know industrialist is carrying, uh, and so are able to collaborate better and and we see it in the bottom line. Absolutely. So I, I have wondered, I've, I can't think of effective strategies for addressing the sort of political problems we have now that are related to these ethical issues. Uh, 
the, and the political division that we have now. Um, do you address that at all in the work that you do? Yes, absolutely. And I, I had uh, listened earlier to uh, your interview with uh, Bijoy Goswami, which is, that was a fabulous interview. Uh, and he was talking in there about the, um, the dualism, the, the um, bias toward dualism. And that's where I would go with, with this and, and look at, I, I see the dualism as being one is being our barrier to that unity and our barrier to the, the success that we need to, um, you know, to come together and to overcome global or the, the, um, the problems of global warming, the, uh, the inequities in, in earning and, um, so, so many other things. So just think of all the ills and the, and I actually have a model for that, that I use. Um, and so, and you and I've talked about, uh, you know, George Gurdjieff who, who brought the Enneagram to the West. And, um, I love Enneagram. We, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'll talk, talk about it all day. Um, but, uh, yeah, look at that. There we go. There you are. Got a visual aid here, um, but this you know this symbol and the application of this um, being used for humans, uh, personality. Um, you know, you know, I personally am a one on the enneagram. That application is a newer, more modern application of enneagram, and the the more ancient application of it that goes back um, thousands of years um, is um, the application is the application of that symbol and, and those concepts to, uh, process. Um, so, um, the work that I've done and that I'm continuing to do is mapping a hero's journey onto the Enneagram. So we're able to bring in our own, you know, our own personal style. I'm a one, um, and I have connections to other numbers through my wings, through the arrows, uh, through the, you know, through kind of my ranking of, of types, because, you know, you could be a one, but then you could be a close tie with a, with a nine and, or a, with a, with a five or whatever, whatever the, your second is. So you have connections to all of these numbers, but looking at, uh, at the Enneagram as a process for moving through and the, and without getting into all of the details, because I think the most simple um, fundamental concept of it is the embracing of not just the light of my type or of, of, the, of the truth that I'm looking at, but also the darkness. Um, so the illuminated side of that and the eclipse side. And if I'm fully in, um, in that illuminated side, um, I'm, I, you know, I'm uh, lost in the light. I'm snow blind. Um, if I'm fully in the darkness, then I'm obviously lost. I can't see where I'm going. So there, there we have the ability to get lost on either on either side. Um, there we go. Um, and this and what I'm uh, what I'm proposing um, is not in this article specifically. Uh, but it's, I call it the half lit path. Um, and that is, that is the path forward and the path that I've discovered, um, that is moving, that is, that is acknowledging the light, acknowledging the darkness and moving forward in between. And, uh, I, you know, the, the young people have, um, have gone after all of the dual dualistic concepts that, that we, uh, hold dear, um, for, you know, specifically look at gender. Um, that's, that's the most fundamental dualistic worldview that we, that we assume that we understand, um, and that we, that we assumed that we could take for granted. Um, uh, and that's even being called into question. And so I, you know, if you don't have a model for, for understanding a world outside of dualism, then you are, um, you're very vulnerable, um, to be taken advantage of by people like politicians who can't come in and say, guess what? You don't have to change one bit. You can 
uphold this dualistic worldview. You don't have to change. And, um, and, you know, just follow me and you don't, you don't have to do any of these things. And, um, which is not true. I mean, it's, it, there is, uh, the, the truth is the truth. And, and I believe the truth is that overlap between both of those sides. And so, um, and so I, uh, I hopefully have answered your question or, or at least I'm pointing to it. Well, that's I, interesting to say the truth is the truth. It's, we kind of, we get lost in our own heads and we, we lose sight, I guess, of the fact that just because we think something that doesn't really make it true or real. And we get very confused, you know, and, and we can be especially confused if we live in a, uh, a media era where there's so many media inputs. So it's like a constant thing. We're constantly paying attention to media messaging, uh, whether it's through our computers or through our television systems or, or whatever. And mostly it's all digital now, digital media. And it's so pervasive and there's so much of it and people can get so confused because of the messaging they're getting, even if they're just, you know, if they're just paying attention to fiction, they get confused about whether the fiction is fiction or is it true? You know, you get ideas in your head. I, I have a thing where I talk about concepts in science fiction that we come to accept as true and real, even though there's no, real instance of those things, you know, uh, an example might be time travel. Most people believe that time travel is completely possible and, and that it's probably happening, but really nobody has ever seen an instance of time travel, except at maybe a subatomic level. That's a, that's a really good point, John. And, uh, and I, and I think that, that it's, that it is, um, easy to, to get confused. And I, and it is easy to become <clears throat> prey of misinformation. And one of the scariest, um, examples of that, and I'll actually, um, tie this back into my, my background as a, as a couples therapist, um, looking at the, the work of Dr. Terry real, uh, with grandiosity and shame. And so when I would have couples come in, if they had came in with big problems, uh, typically one of them was in a place of grandiosity and one was in a place of shame. And, uh, his, his, uh, definition of, of that, which I, I love and I use all the time is the person in, uh, in shame is the guy who gets on an elevator, uh, and he's, he's, you know, scared of, of closed, uh, enclosed places and he turns green. Uh, you know, people get on the elevator and he turns green. Um, grandiosity is, there we go. Yeah, wonderful. Um, grandiosity is the guy who gets on a crowded elevator and lights up a cigar and everyone else turns green. And um, the person who is, you know, who uh, is um, turning green because he doesn't, he, you know, he's scared of um, a crowded elevator is in shame and he's in pain, but the guy who lights up a cigar is in grand grandiosity and he's in trouble. And the hard, you know, we're really good at bringing people up from shame. We're less skilled at bringing people down from grandiosity. And, and so, because it feels good. I mean, I, I know it well, I, when I feel like I'm right, and I have a point, um, I'm going to, you know, it feels good. It feels good to win the argument or to have the upper hand. Um, also knowing that when we are in that place of grandiosity, we are, we're, we're in trouble. We're potentially in trouble. And, uh, and that is where that, that work. Um, and also we don't want to be in a place of shame. I mean, that's, that is, you know, looking at Brene Brown's work with shame, um, is, is so resonant, um, to me personally and to so many people. And so, um, that, you know, how do we, how do we make sure that we're not living in that darkness of shame? How do we make sure that we're not living in that 
in the light of grandiosity and that we're holding, you know, we're, we're, uh, traversing between both of those. Um, and it's never a straight path. You know, it's, it is, it's wobbly for sure. Is this related all to cult-like behavior? I'm thinking about a certain ex-president. Oh, I, well, I'm, that's the, that's the thing too, is, is if, is if, um, someone can convince you that you're a victim and, uh, they can, they can help you, uh, you know, just like I said earlier, not help you feel like you're part of a special club, uh, and that, you know, information that nobody else knows, um, then it's really easy to take advantage. Uh, and so that is, you know, that's definitely one of the, the risks of the, you know, a charismatic leader is, is that, uh, feeling of, of being special and knowing that if I'm sharing special information with you and it's, uh, you know, kind of secretive, the, you know, the, the Q and on, um, and it doesn't matter how yeah. ridiculous it is. I mean, that, it, that's, um, a fan fiction, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it, it was initially started by someone who failed in Hollywood as a script writer. Um, and, and so it's got these kind of cheesy fan fiction elements to it. Um, but if you have enough, you know, if you feel like you're part of a special club, if you feel like you have this information that you're sticking it to someone who, uh, thinks that you're inferior, um, then yeah, it, 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 the, the only problem with that, it, with those types of conspiracy theories is that it takes so much, um, content to stay, to maintain that, that false narrative that it really becomes an, an obsession. And, um, so if, if you, you know, whatever your belief is, if you just keep having to, uh, absorb and, and digest more and more information. And, and if anything that is counter to that, uh, to that point or whatever that belief is, if that, um, if that feels, uh, really threatening to you that you need to go and digest more, then that's, that's probably an indicator of, of that, that type of, um, control and kind of media control that's, that's necessary. And, um, I'll just say that I've, I, I identify with that, with, um, wanting to believe something. And so seeking out confirmation of that belief and, and looking for that, you know, I, this isn't something, I mean, it's easy to, to make fun of someone who is, who believes in, you know, that, uh, children are, you know, shipped off to Mars, um, by, you know, George Soros or whatever the, you know, whatever the theory is, or that the earth is flat, for example. Um, but you know, I have beliefs that are, that, um, are not fully scientifically validated and that I, I'm not really sure about things that I'd like to believe. And so it's important for me to, to check that and to, to know that I don't hold the ultimate truth and, um, you know, you and I, John had lunch with someone who, um, had some fundamental disagreement. We had some fundamental disagreements with and, um, yeah. and, but the relationship is more important than, than those, than those disagreements. And that's, you know, some, sometimes it's, you know, there are people we just can't, um, continue to be friends with, or, or we can't, um, we're, we're never going to, we're not good for each other, whatever, you know, whatever the, the cases, but, um, but really, you know, those fundamental truths are so important, the connection, the need for connection, the need for finding that common ground, the need for, um, approaching with humility, um, things that we don't understand. Well, there's, I mean, part of the problem that we have now is that there's competition for truth, really. I mean, hmm? we have truth and then we have alternate truths and we have outright lies. And uh, it, it's very hard for some people to know what to believe. Some people are less anchored than others. And then, you know, you mentioned QAnon. QAnon works kind of like an ARG, an alternate reality game. Sure. And people have a lot of fun playing alternate reality games, but 
it's a problem when the game the the game framework is lost that when you lose the assumption that you're playing a game and actually think that you're in a reality and this reality you know it, it doesn't exist it's not real i mean there's not this idea that there's a, a network of pedophiles there may be a network of pedophiles somewhere but i don't think it's what they're thinking about sure. you know yes um and yes. and i don't know uh, I don't know. I had, I once, uh, did some reading, uh, some stuff that had been written by a, a guy who had some experience deprogramming people from cults and, uh, it's hard. It's, it's a difficult process to get people to come back into the real world once they've stepped so far away from it. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, John, something I'm thinking of is um, I've done uh, spiritual direction um, and worked with with people who I have um, fundamental uh, differences with around, you know, the vaccine, around um, a lot of the the narratives around that. Um, and one of the the incredible things about that type of relationship, that type of coming together on a spiritual level is that, you know, am I triggered by hearing things like that, that I disagree with that, that, um, that I think are, you know, and on many levels harmful or, or, um, uh, you know, taking advantage of, of, uh, you know, people who, uh, are, you know, approaching some, you know, looking for information in good faith. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, that's not the most important thing in the room. Uh, there's something else, there's something underneath. Um, and it requires a lot of trust on my part to listen and subtract myself and subtract my own assumptions and my own, um, you know, hot takes and my own, whatever, you know, my own data out of it. Uh, and to hear, uh, what's going on. And, um, I'll mention one of the, uh, the tools for this, and this is another meditation, uh, that I don't know that we've talked about it, uh, but it's a deep heart meditation and it comes out of the effortless mindfulness tradition. Um, and which is, um, I don't know. I, I don't remember the, um, the Buddhist word for it, but there it's a, it's a lesser known tradition where, where it's, um, it's a way of, of, um, disengaging with our assumptions about, about where our intelligence is located or where our spirit is located or where I, I am located. Uh, and, and we will move, we'll, we'll engage with all of those parts. We'll engage with the, uh, with the, the body, we'll engage with the mind, we'll engage with the you know, the relation relational space between, you know, that you and I are sharing right now, uh, and then drop down into the deep heart. And, and I call it a deep heart meditation where we will, um, we'll, we'll sit there and we'll acknowledge the spaciousness and the different, different qualities of that space that are unlike when I'm up here and I'm thinking about the grocery list or my, um, my goals or my regrets or whatever, or my body when, when I'm thinking about, um, you know, it's a little stuffy in this room or whatever, whatever the, the physical sensations are, or even the relational, you know, um, thinking about the things that, you know, you and I would like to talk about or, or our relationship, those sorts of things. So there's a, there's a different quality to being in that deep heart space. And in that space, there's access to eternal truths um, that that go that are way more important than than all of the data that I could pull up um, with with anyone and and reinforce my points. And so being able to connect and and I believe and and I've done this with with uh, people who are into spirituality and and good at meditation, you know, like you would be, John. Uh, and I've done it with people who are, um, who have zero experience with it. Um, and it is a, 
it's a consistent and um, and very honestly a very quick way of getting to a place that is is beyond those those hard and fast truths of, and the 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 uh, duality that we like to live in. Yeah, the the essence of a human is not necessarily their personality. I mean, that's just sort of interface, right? And right. if you can get past that, you know, we're, we're all pretty, pretty much, we're very similar. We're, we're in fact, yes. from a Buddhist perspective, we're all the same, right? You know, I'm the same as Donald Trump and he's the same as me, you yes. know? Oh my gosh, that, that was troubling to say that. <laughs> Do I need to say it too, John? So we're, we're in solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. We're all Donald Trump. <laughs> we are. We are. And, and there, there is something, um, I don't just speak about him specifically. There's something even the, in the way he speaks that leaves a lot of room. Um, it's, you know, it's a little circular, you know, it'll, it'll be, it, he'll, he'll start to make a point and he'll say, um, you know, well, well, I heard it and, you know, I don't, I don't know what to think, you know, maybe it's, it's, that's something, you know, he'll, he'll say things like that. And, and there's something about that, that leaves room for that universal connection. You know, we can either connect to that where I'm like, I, I, uh, overlay my assumptions onto that and, you know, maybe they're right. Um, uh, but it's, I think that's less relevant there. There's something. Um, and I think personally about him, there's, there's maybe an emptiness, um, uh, about him that allows for us to overlay a lot of things onto him and, and, uh, on, on both sides of the, on, on not both sides on the entire spectrum of, of, uh, the political scale. I've always, I've been thinking that he's in real pain. I, I can definitely, I can definitely, um, see that. And, and there is, um, and, and, you know, none of this is a, is a, uh, um, you know, uh, is a, like a carte blanche forgiveness for, for the things that, that I, I find truly hurt, harmful and hurtful to, uh, to people I love and, and people I love who, who follow, um, as well. But, um, but it's also there, I need to own the part of me that I'm overlaying there and, and that I see about myself, those things that I don't like about myself that, that I see demonstrated because it's really easy to see on someone like that. It's really, uh, or it's, it's really easy to be triggered by someone like that because, um, just because of the, just the nature the way of the communication and just the, that kind of, uh, extreme nature, uh, as well. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a sort of profound selfishness there that it's, it's hard to accept, but on the other hand, it's probably helpful and useful to try to see through that perspective and understand how it works and and address it that way and uh, especially in trying to have discussions with people who seem to think that he is uh their leader or that he's going to somehow show them the way i don't know the way to what but yeah well and and i think it's it's useful the thing that's useful for me is to see you know what is the, what's in the mirror there that, that I could learn from? Uh, because, you know, as much as I love to support, uh, local businesses and, um, and cooperatives like, like yours, John, uh, yeah. it, I'm also contributing to a capitalist society where there are, there's a, amazing amount of selfishness and yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I act selfishly, uh, all the time. And so, so, I'm definitely triggered by that. Um, I'm definitely triggered by that overt selfishness. Mine's mine's more covert. Um, yeah, yeah, and, me too. Um, and even covert to me. And so that's that's where I I find um, that kind of work useful um, because you know I there I'm not I'm not fully in the light um, or or even if I'm fully in the light I'm I'm in a place of grandiosity. Um, and, and, 
and it's hard. It's hard to get out of it because it feels so good. Well, yeah, it's easier to think that the other guy is being selfish and you're just being reasonable. Right. Exactly. And <laughs> all these other people agree with me. So let's, you yeah. know, no, there's no point in, uh, looking in that, in that mirror. Well, well, we're kind of close to um, an hour here and we probably should wrap it up, but I do want to thank you for joining me today. This has been such a great conversation. I'm having a good time and I, I think we should do it again. We didn't really talk enough about Enneagram, for instance. Yes. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do an Enneagram episode. Right on. Okay. We'll do that <laughs> soon. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. You can follow the Plutopia News Network at Plutopia.io. On Facebook, go to at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. With John Lepkowski, I'm Scoop Sweeney. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.